0: 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12 Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. I brought this uh, bottle of water with me to keep me company. Glenn seems to uh, do it every week, so I thought I'd try and see if it makes any difference. (laughs) Well, if you've been with us, you know that we have been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 4, Paul, in light of the second coming of Christ encourages the believers in that city to grow in two things. First, to grow in holiness. And today, as we have just heard, uh, he wants us to grow in our love for one another. And you would think that that love would look very particular. But Paul puts an unexpected spin on this, and he encourages us, to work. Now, before we start thinking about spiritual work, kingdom work, like discipleship, evangelism, and missions, Paul says, no, I mean work. And today, he wants us to hear him talk about the importance of work. And I know in a city like Washington, this is something that I probably don't have to preach on because all of you are already hard workers to begin with, But nonetheless, we need a biblical foundation in our work so that as we think through this thing called work, something that consumes so much of our time and resource, that we would do so in a way that honors God and loves others well. So let's pray before we dive into the word. God, we give you thanks for this time that we can come to hear from you We know that, Christ, you are the incarnate word, the living bread, and we ask now that you would feed us. Strengthen us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Roughly 30 years ago, the Bengals, not to be confused with a football team, sang the song, It's Just Another Manic Monday. I wish it was Sunday, because that's my fun day. My, I don't have to run day, it's just another manic Monday. Now, you're going to be thinking about this song all week, aren't you? You're welcome. Did you know that the late Prince wrote this song? It's safe to say that Mondays aren't exactly popular. We say things like, is it Friday yet? With great anticipation of the week and all the things that we could do, the fun that we would have. But then come Sunday, we're already saying to ourselves, it's already Monday, and there's a sense of loss and grief. It's like Monday's Friday's ugly stepsister, right? No one wants Monday, and we're not alone. A New York Times article entitled, Why You Hate Work, reports Gallup's research that around the world, out of 142 countries, the portion of employees that actually enjoy work is, you want to take a guess? 13%. 13% engaged, meaning involvement, commitment, passion, enthusiasm, focused effort, and energy. Now, before we treat this as a throwaway statistic that apply only to non-Christians who don't understand the biblical importance of work, I think it's important for us as Christians to humbly acknowledge that we don't do this very well, that we grieve the coming on Monday just as anyone else does. And one reason is the lack of a robust theology of work. And for those of us in school, I would say study Many Christians hold a decidedly unbiblical view of work. And I realize I paint in broad strokes here, but I think if we're to sum it up, our thoughts fall into one of these three general categories. First is that work is a curse. As if before the fall, Adam and Eve just frolicked in the garden. And then sin came and now they got to work. No, that's not true. And second, false belief is that uh, work is somehow a second-class citizen to worship. What we do on Sunday is important and honoring the Lord, but what we do in between Sundays, eh, not so much. And so we try to baptize work with all these spiritual things as we will see. Third, some of us we make an idol out of our work. We look to it for our worth, our identity. The result of such distorted view on work is discontentment. And the Bible spoke of this long ago, back in Genesis chapter 3. Hear these words, starting with verse 17. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and out of it you were taken. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One of the key ideas that are introduced here in Genesis chapter 3 is the word pain pain you see this is nature of sin it's what it always does it takes the good gifts of god and it twists it so that it becomes a curse and the result of it is no longer gratitude and delight in all the things that god has done for us but rather there is pain frustration disappointment and this is a narrative that we all live in on this side of heaven If we were to survey the people here and ask, how would you describe your work? I wonder how many of us would say, I love what I do. And even then, why do you love it? Is it because it honors the Lord and you're able to serve others well, or is it because you get what you want? And honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, I think even those of us who love work could do so for selfish reasons. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. We're not stuck here. The good news of the gospel is that everything changes in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as Apostle Paul exhorts the Christians in the city to live well in light of the second coming of Christ, he encourages them to excel in their daily work. And this is a calling that we all share as Christians, a calling as redeemed people on this side of heaven to repurpose our work so that we don't simply serve ourselves to get what we want, but that we seek the good of others. And in order for us to do this well, we need to remember two things that Paul highlights here in this text. First, the dignity of work, and second, the purpose of work the dignity of work, and the purpose of work. Now, before we actually get into those two points, let me be clear about what this sermon is not. This sermon is not about discerning God's will so you can land the perfect job. There will be no seven points on finding your perfect career. No, it is not also a sermon on managing difficult relationships at workplace so that you could be happier where you are. Rather, I think we need to, as we visit this subject, understand that God takes our work seriously and therefore we ought to as well. So let's go to our first point, dignity of work. Like most cities, Washington prizes work that mirrors its idols, idols of power and influence. But God does not. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God tells Samuel, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. In this city, people prize things like education, experience, and expertise, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when he looks at our heart, he's looking for hearts that are committed to living out our faith in love and gratitude, right where we are in the current station of life for the things that God has already done for us and the things that he has promised to do. In other words, he is looking for hearts that say, God, I do this for you and because of you. Not because it makes sense per se, not because it gives me what I want per se, but this is where you have me at least now, and I want to honor you. And this is what pleases the Lord. And this is what Paul refers to back in verse 1 of the same chapter. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Please God. And then he adds this, as in fact, you are living. Now, it's easy for us to think that they got this right, that somehow they were growing in their holiness and in their love, for one another in ways that you and I don't quite measure up to. And so we can say, Paul, yeah, these words apply to them, but is the Lord pleased with me? Is the Lord pleased with my work, my life, my efforts to honor him? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. In fact, the Thessalonians, they did such a poor job in living and growing in holiness and love that Paul picks up on this very subject in his second letter to the Thessalonians with a much severe tone saying, shape up, come on now. I've spoken to you about this and it matters deeply to God and therefore it ought to matter deeply to you. So if that is the case that Paul is speaking into, I want you to then hear what God is saying to you today. That he is pleased with your efforts to live for him. We fumble our way through this, don't we? We make commitments to honor him through our work in the relationships that God has gifted us, but then come Monday morning, what happens? Eh, not so great. But even as we try, as imperfect as it may be, the Lord looks at the heart and he is pleased. I see glimpses of this in my interaction with my five-year-old son, James. He often brings home his masterpiece. It's a mix between Picasso and Monet. And that's a nice way of saying, I have no idea what it's supposed to be. And he would bring home these artworks from school, and he would ask me, Daddy, look, do you like it? And I would look at this thing, and I would say, I have no idea what it is. James, can you tell me more? And he would say, Daddy, it's you and me playing basketball. And I'm trying to figure out who is who and what is what. I'm like, all right. And there in that moment of confusion, not knowing what to say, James would follow it up with this question. Daddy, are you proud of me? And when I look at that artwork objectively, the answer is no, I am not. (laughs) I am not. I don't have four knees that bend in every which way. And I am not like ten times your size. What is this? But I look at his heart. His desire to give me his best. To have a relationship with me because he honors this relationship. And when I see that heart, I am pleased. And every time I see that unfolding right before my eyes in my living room, I get a glimpse of God's heart for us. We bring our broken lives, all the pieces of our broken work week, and we say, God, are you proud of me? And we look up uncertain as to what kind of response we're going to get. And he looks back at us with this huge smile and he says, of course, I am proud of you. It is not because you did so well per se, but it is because you are in Christ and he has done perfectly well. People, I want you to understand that that's a starting point of our faith. We don't bring our perfect weak to God to somehow appease him of his anger and wrath, but we begin with this very idea that God is already pleased with us. And if we can live in this gospel reality every day, how different our work weeks would be. How different our interactions would be. And that is the, this picture, this vision that I believe Paul is painting before us. So whether you are in a meeting with a client finishing up a major project, teaching a group of rebellious students who could care less about you, or caring for an infant in the middle of the night, I want you to know, as you seek to honor God, God is pleased. And it is not a second class to worship you do on Sundays, but it is just as much important. If we really understand Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. For this is your spiritual act of worship. If we really allow those words to sow deep into our hearts, we would understand that caring for our little ones and changing the diaper in the middle of the night when you're half asleep is actually worship to God. And he is pleased with that. He crowns our work with his delight. The notion that we need to somehow spiritualize our work by bracketing our workday with prayer and pausing for scripture reading or even working up our courage to share our gospel with our coworkers because our work is not spiritual, is unbiblical. God appreciates he is pleased and he delights in the work we do. It is not just spiritual. It is actually worship to God. And it is God's pleasure in our work that gives its dignity. That's what gives its dignity. And to further clarify this point, just in case those of, those of us, maybe not the elites of the society, He goes on to say in verse 11, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Listen now, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Did you catch that? Paul is saying, listen up. This is not only for the elites in the community people who grapple with high and lofty thoughts. But this is for every single person, even to the least. You see, in the ancient Greek world, where it was widely believed that the spiritual was good and the material bad, it was actually very degrading to work with one's hands. It is likely that Apostle Paul includes that phrase in there Uh, to encourage capable people, Christians who refuse to work because somehow, hey, look, Jesus is coming, so I don't really have to work. I'm going to freeload off people until he returns. And Paul says, no, because Christ is coming, you ought to work and work hard. You see, Bible pushes against this notion that somehow certain work is more important than others. Regardless of your paycheck or the size of your office or where your office is located, Paul says all work matters to God. And this really shouldn't surprise us, really, right? Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary, was a tent maker, and Jesus, our Lord, our master, was a carpenter. They both held blue-collar jobs. If you're here today looking into Christian faith, let me pause here and say this. You can look into all the religions in the world, but you're not going to find a God like ours. Christian God is the only God who got his hands dirty to serve his people. From incarnation, being born in a manger, all the way to the cross, he engaged us down in the pits, if you will, in order to demonstrate his love for us. And in John chapter 13, we read about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, a task that was reserved for the lowest of the slaves. And the very next day, those very hands would be stretched on the cross so that we would understand in tangible ways his great love for us. So hear me on this, Christians. Your work matters to God. Regardless of what it is that you are doing, your work matters to God. Dorothy Sayer is helpful here. This is what she says. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on time. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. And she goes on to say, there were no faulty tables or furniture that ever came out of that shop in Galilee. And we, as God's people, ought to take great pride in our present calling and work hard for the Lord. Let's move on to our second point, and we'll move fast. Okay, The purpose of work. The purpose of work. In 1 Thessalonians, Apostle Paul exhorts believers to work hard in light of Christ's return, because by working, we are then loving those around us. Okay? And it happens first as we learn to repent of the idols in our hearts. Tim Keller, pastor and author in New York, uh, is helpful here. He says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that there are two tiers uh, of idolatry: the surface idols and deep idols. The idea is that deep idols, the idols of power, approval, comfort, and security, they wear different masks, and they disguise themselves, if you will, as surface idols. In other words, the deep idol of comfort could uh, could disguise itself as the surface idols of money, approval, or relationship. And we need to be aware of this Because repentance, true repentance, begins by identifying these deep-seated idols that are lodged in our hearts, to name them, to bring them before God, and to confess them and say, Lord, I have no way of overcoming these things. I think Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David's prayer is helpful. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. This ought to be our prayer. Lord, expose the sin in me and teach me to bring these things before you. And as we do that, we begin then, secondly, to experience true freedom. You see, repentance frees us from the power idols have over us. Once we realize that we are not our work, that we are not valued or accepted and certainly not saved by our work, we can then begin to embrace Christian freedom and to use our work to love and serve others. Chariots of Fire is one of my favorite movies, and uh, if you're like 20-something and you've never seen this, it's okay. We forgive you. Uh, it's a story about two athletes competing in the 1924 Olympics, and uh, The two main characters there are Eric Little and um, Harold Abrams. And I I love this this moment of just raw honesty right before his 100-meter dash or competition. Harold Abrams, he says this, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And then he goes on to say something really insightful. He says, I was afraid to lose, but now I am afraid to win. It's almost as if he's beginning to sense what's on the other side of that finish line. And he's questioning, is that what, it, what I really want? Is that going to fulfill all the longings of my heart? And there is this strange sense that maybe he's bought into a lie that somehow winning this race won't justify his entire existence. Spoiler alert if you've never seen this. He wins, okay? He wins. And right after his victory, he and his trainer, they're at a bar, okay, in the middle of the day, drinking maybe too much, but not celebrating their victory as much as numbing their pain. I think his fear came true. All that glitters is not gold. And some of us here can relate, can't we? We came here to this city, pursuing something. And we thought our work would be the answer to that. And it left us broken, disappointed. And what a blessing that is that God would allow us to go through disappointments so that we would have vision to see his grace for us. Repentance frees us then from the empty promises the idols make. And as we begin to walk now in our freedom, we're then able to love others. So we get now to our text here in verses 9 through 11. Paul seems to connect these two thoughts together. He says, love others well. How? By working. Thessalonians, I want you to love more and more. How? By working and working hard. Why? Because by working, we serve one another. And by serving, we picture the servant Christ himself. Martin Luther, loving others through work, said this. He said, "We respond to call to love our neighbor by fulfilling the duties associated with our everyday work." And here's a thought: as I was preparing the sermon, thinking about my neighborhood, especially my neighbor, I don't know how, and I don't have to, but somehow, as I seek to be faithful in my calling to be a pastor. God uses that to love and serve my next-door neighbors. I don't know how. And so as we think about our mission to be in and for the city, I want you to understand that your prayer for the city matters, that your work of mercy and justice matter. But your work matters also. What you do from 9 to 6 or 7, some of you, it matters matters. And we don't know how God uses that, but he takes that to serve the common good and to love the people that God has placed in your life. And this is our hope as we go to work tomorrow morning. Regardless of how crazy tomorrow morning may be, maybe you will have a manic Monday. I want you to go into work knowing that it matters to the Lord. It's worship to him. And he takes your work to love and serve others well. Let's pray together. God, we come before you and we give you thanks for the finished work of Christ. Indeed, you have worked hard to love us well. And you utter the words, it is finished. And so now, we live from from grace to grace, to strength to strength, worshiping you, and we ask that you would empower us, your people, with this truth, but also strength to work hard as we seek to honor you and love others well. In Christ's name, amen.